0: This is the Deep Color podcast series. Deep Color is an oral history project that features artists and arts professionals discussing their work, ideas, and lives, offering listeners a forthright and unique understanding about the process, experiences, and people behind the artistic pursuit. My name is Joseph Hart. I produce and facilitate this series. These recordings are casual, long form, and unscripted. Deep Color is independently produced and a free resource. Please consider making a donation through the support page at deepcolorpodcast.com. Your continued belief and support in this project is incredibly important, and I thank you for your generosity. This is a special edition of Deep Color. My close friend, Matt Rich, organized, facilitated, and recorded the following conversation with curator and play worker, Megan Dickerson. Matt is an incredible visual artist, teacher, and collaborator, and one of the smartest observers and thinkers I know. Megan Dickerson is the senior exhibitions manager at the New Children's Museum in San Diego. In this role, she collaborates with contemporary artists to create interactive artworks for the museum and has built and trains a dedicated staff of playworkers to facilitate the visitors' experience of these installations. These museum-based projects, as well as her extensive independent and community-based initiatives seek to create situations for invention and socialization that exist outside of, and yet reflect, everyday interactions. They are often humorous and fun as they organically create working groups, model complex social systems, or generate spontaneous games with elements as simple as a pile of cardboard boxes. Broadly speaking, her work at the museum questions the nature and purpose of play, the role of interactive play in a museum context and interrogates the model of a public facing museum. This conversation was recorded at Matt's studio in the Linda Vista neighborhood of San Diego.
1: We're just like, we've been reading lots of books.
2: You've been, you're very smart. <laughs> so it would be great to introduce you to the audience to talk a little bit about what you do. And what you do is a complicated question, right? There's many, many aspects to what you do. Um, yeah. You are a independent maker. Yeah, sure. Of of things of
1: experiences p- experiences,
2: which different than making an object. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you are a maker <laughs> of, of experiences as per, on behalf of an institution as well. Yeah, yeah. So could you talk a little bit about you know sort of what you what you're doing right now?
1: So my title up until recently was manager of exhibition development Mm -hmm. and the title before I came into this position was curator. Mm
2: -hmm. And this is at the new children's museum
1: at the new children's museum in San Diego, Mm -hmm. California. Um, and I'll get into why that's an important distinction, but, Mm -hmm. um, the new children's museum is a contemporary art museum for children. Mm -hmm. So, um, and even that gets defined in many different ways, but, um, we commission artists to create what would be called exhibits in a typical children's museum. So kind of if you think about a children's museum, for people who have been to a children's museum before, the first thing that usually comes to mind is, oh, like the places with the pretend grocery store, mm-hmm. or, or people might think of a science museum where oh, I I go and I push a button and it causes a little tiny tornado and I I can learn about science by looking at
2: this tiny tornado. Right, looking, watching.
1: Yeah, watching your hands on. You know, I mean, like like being able to try something out that's different than what you can try out in the rest of the world. But so we, since the early 90s, have been commissioning artists. Um, And the reason for that is... uh, well, I can go way back. At, at, I don't know how how, how far back. In, in the
2: institution's history? Yeah,
1: yeah, because it's kind of hard to explain how we got to where we are right now and how I have this position without explaining kind of where the institution Sure, absolutely. Okay, so um, the New Children's Museum was founded as a more traditional children's museum in the early 80s in a mall in San Diego, and... Uh, they were going to make a move in the early 90s to Balboa Park, which is the main center of museums in San Diego. Mm -hmm. And they, uh, before they could move into this building, they had to move somewhere else for a temporary Mm -hmm. period of time. So uh, there was a warehouse available in downtown San Diego, and they decided to move into this space. And I've talked to the exhibition's manager from that time and she said it was really overwhelming because you move from this tiny mall space to Mm -hmm. suddenly a warehouse Mm -hmm. and Bob Sane was the director at the time and he had been working with artists for many years so he said well can we just tap into the artist community and talk to artists about because they're they're good at figuring out what do I do with the warehouse right
2: (laughs) space Uh, is something they like to um inhabit yeah yeah
1: and and there was a lot of space and so they started to commission um artists to to help think about that and uh so that became a pretty interesting successful model.
2: How long were they in the temporary space for?
1: For about 8 years, 9 long years. Time. Yeah. Um, and there's all sorts of stories about there being raves in the building. <laughs> and Why not? Lots of after hours stuff. Yeah. And there's a huge basement. And, you know, I once had a Lyft driver who said, I used to go there and we used to like get super high.
2: <laughs> not while it was a museum, but before. no. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, I made the assumption actually before or after hours,
2: but it could have been all uh, part <laughs> of the have same been. sort of it energy. Could have been. The
1: same. Yeah. Um, yeah. So then, uh, the museum closed for, uh, for the building of, of this new structure. Right. And, which is not in Balboa Park. So which it- is not. So, yeah. So, so what happened was um, they decided that being in the warehouse offered more opportunities and more possibilities mm-hmm. than moving into a really small space in Balboa Park. Mm-hmm. So, they, they decided not to, to move into this, you know, highly biddable kind of space in Balboa mm-hmm. Park. It was, it was much desired. And so, now it's what the Menge Museum inhabits.
2: And there would have been a lot more, maybe, restrictions on what could have happened. Yeah, no, maybe? Perhaps, Definitely from the outside.
1: Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah. Um, historic building, all that right, kind of right. stuff. So, you know, instead we could bring a giant truck, you know, into the museum. And what do you do with a 1954 Chevy truck? You just let kids paint it with a bunch of tempera o- paint. Over and over and
3: over, <laughs> and
2: over and over.
1: You know, until it gets so thick that it's got these, like, beautiful striations.
2: But that's, I mean, it's amazing to think about that institution being shaped by something as simple as a temporary location and the possibilities of that space. And then hmm. that diverting their course into, to a, you know, a new, a new future, mm-hmm. which involves, you know, raising funding and designing a custom building, which mm-hmm. announces itself from the outside as something
3: mm-hmm.
2: special, something, you know, that they couldn't do in Balboa Park. And then I know that you you've been there since 2013 in your position, and you know it, during that time you have you know it has changed a lot, and you've spent a lot of time changing it. I think thinking about what the possibilities of that museum mm-hmm. are. So so it's inter- interesting to me that that the institution is flexible and needs to be flexible, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, so I mean, we're just still on one one portion of who, who, <laughs> who you are and what you what what you are, but maybe yeah. we can just linger here for a second and talk. A little bit about sort of how the museum has shaped you and how you have shaped the museum in your six years, five and a half years there.
1: Yeah. Well, so I I came to the the work from um, having this sort of divergent practice back in Boston because Mm -hmm. I worked at Boston Children's Museum for 10 years Mm -hmm. and I worked in community partnerships and cultural programs and programming. But at the same time, I was working as an independent curator and a part of the Berwick Research Institute collective. And uh, that was a bunch of us who were, you know, the early 2000s, recent graduates from mostly Boston art schools Mm -hmm. and wanting to continue that critical community. And also realizing there wasn't support for the kind of artwork that, you know, we wanted to do. Mm -hmm. So um, I came out of that community. And when I saw the listing for this weird position in San Diego that I randomly came across on just on a whim, Mm -hmm. um, I looked up the museum on the specific day that they'd been (laughs) looking for this person to be the manager of exhibitions. Um, and so it was this perfect marriage of all the work that I've been doing with children's museums and, you know, work and thinking about redefining what art in the social realm, the public realm can be.
2: Right. And in specific, I mean, you you have spent a great deal of time thinking about the notion of play mm-hmm. right? and and how the museum, this complicated entity, which sort of bridges the gap between contemporary art and artists and your core audience, which is children
3: mm-hmm.
2: and their babies, babies, their children <laughs> and their um, their caretakers, their, mm-hmm. the people they bring with them or yeah. that bring them. <laughs> um But the but play means a lot of things to you, I think. Or yeah. play, play, you know, uh, uh, as a topic in your life is uh, is a, is a very developed thing, right? It's yeah. a studied thing. In fact, yeah. you went to school for yeah. play, yeah. right? Can you talk a little bit about that? What that yeah. program was like?
1: So, sort of circling back to this question of how how do I define myself? And sometimes I'll mm-hmm. call myself a curator. Sometimes I'll call myself an artist. Um, but one of the terms that I'm really comfortable with is play worker. Mm -hmm. And, um, that refers to a practice from the UK and also in Japan and parts of Scandinavia of adults who, um, work with kids in a very non-directive way.
2: Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Specifically adults. I mean, adults that work. Yes.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So, so adults. It's a trained. A trained. It's a, you know, you can get your, now you can get your PhD in it, Mm -hmm. um, and so you have your master's and I have my master's, mm-hmm. which came out of, you know, um, thinking I should probably get a master's degree, mm-hmm. you know, somewhere I was in, I think I, in my early thirties. And, um, I was thinking, what do I really want to study? What would I actually want to spend time mm-hmm. thinking about? And that leads you to the question of, well, what do I spend a lot of time thinking about right. already? Right. And play and playfulness is the common thread of everything that I've, done mm-hmm. professionally and also personally right. you know in the kinds of parties that I'd throw or the people that I chose to spend time with and right. so I googled as a joke masters in play right <laughs> and found out that it existed
2: and then, and then immediately applied or contacted pretty, or or no, just gotten a plane and said, I'm going to go show up and see what happens. <laughs> uh,
1: <clears throat> maybe that's my recklessness talking, but um, I I found out that it was a thing I could do. I found out that it was a thing that I could afford. Right, because it's a UK university. And it's very you know low cost, and um, I made a trip out there pretty soon after. And um, so I, I in September. Oh, I, Oh, I can't remember what year it was. But um, I, it might have been 2012, I think, mm-hmm. September 2012. And uh,
2: and you were remote for most of the time, right? Oh, uh, yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. So I showed up, and um, the first class I had with a professor um, was Stuart Lester, who was um, a really brilliant. He's passed away, but brilliant um, researcher on play. Mm-hmm. And the first class we had to figure out how to get from one side of the room to the other room without touching the floor. Mm-hmm. And there were certain parameters around what we could use and what we couldn't use. Were
2: there props in the room, furniture or anything? Like yeah, that? there was
1: some furniture and things like that. Um, but it was so different to me than any kind of team-building exercise that I've experienced before because, you know, in those things... Is it
2: problem-solving or why?
1: Well, you know, so if you... It seemed to be just for the sake of doing it versus mm-hmm. if a professor tells you right. to do this, it's usually...
2: Well, I'll trust each other after yeah. this. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs>
1: we will have we've had a really important experience together where... I remember when I helped you over that folding chair yeah, right. and now we I
2: caught you. I caught you. We can do this project right? because I caught exactly, you.
1: Exactly. Exactly. So it didn't feel like that. It was just absurd and it didn't mm-hmm. really matter if we got over to the other side. And so... Um, that set the tone for this kind of program Mm -hmm. where it was incredibly rigorous, Mm -hmm. you know, and we were looking at um, post-structuralists and we were thinking about things like um, oh god, I mean non-representational theory in relationship to children's play but somehow, unlike other courses of study, we never lost sight of the actual play and playfulness mm-hmm. and we never lost sight of what it's like to be a kid or what it's like to be an adult around kids um,
2: what was the goal i mean we we were other i mean i have a couple questions one is so much of that first experience in that room that first day must have been who who the hell is in the room with you i mean right. did you look around and and see like-minded people or did you would would you immediately start drawing inspiration from these people i mean did did you feel so a, a good feedback with the people in the room, or did you feel sort of mm. feel like it was a, it was a solitary adventure with other people?
1: No, I mean, I guess it, part of it's also travel because I'm in another country and right. everything feels very new and different. And right. but the people in the program were a real mix. You know, a lot of people have been playworkers working on what's called adventure playgrounds right. in the UK. Uh, and had just decided at that point that they wanted to deepen their experience with it, you know. And so part of it was the group of people, but um, part of it was, it was just, I was so used to thinking about play as a method for children to be learning something. And I think I'd separated my life into children's music, and that's where I developed experiences to help teach kids. Mm-hmm. Um how uh, a certain a certain topic and then in my the rest of my life we weren't doing art to teach anybody a specific topic we were just creating experiences right. for whatever reason you know um and we'd always talked about at the berwick research institute you know we made it we formed it as a nonprofit. We, we, have, we were t- our, our like fake motto for a while was fetishizing bureaucracy since two
3: thousand one. Very nice.
1: Um, so we had all the trappings of this really great nonprofit organization, um, but you know our our idea was art art as a or play as a means of doing research. You know, and so we supported that, but I wasn't seeing that anywhere in children's play. We immediately co opted it.
2: And was that a was that a philosophy shared by this program? And did you find a, a place where you could explore that? from a historical and theoretical standpoint, much yeah. deeper than you had with yeah. the people of the Berwick Institute?
1: Oh, no, I mean, much deeper than I could at Boston Children's Museum. Got it. Yeah, because it was more like you took that um, that same spirit of inquiry that you have. So in your early 20s, and you're out of just out of school, and you're high on literature, yeah. <laughs> you know, and you're trying to figure all that stuff out. Um but then as soon as you start to think about kids, it's like, how do we take this playfulness, this instinct, this, you know, this this impulse that children have and how do we push it towards some kind of socializing method, you know, mm-hmm. some way of, of using play as a way of controlling mm-hmm. the direction that kids go in. So, you know, from everything, like what kind of toys we give kids or, right. um, so for me, the program w- and thinking about play work and thinking of myself suddenly as a play worker, just, Changed how I saw children, mm-hmm. and at that point, I was, just, I you know, I couldn't really stay within a traditional children's organization where right. they saw play within this paradigm of progress that that plays how children become better adults. Did you
2: attempt to sort of bring those ideas back and, and and convert people, or 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 at least find some space for you to do what you want, and just didn't wasn't didn't work out?
1: Just didn't take. Yeah. If I look back on my own experiences, the places where I'd allowed children. Agency mm-hmm. it allowed children to set the agenda. Mm-hmm. The outcome was just so much more interesting mm-hmm. and mutual and I learned more about myself and I learned more about the kids who were involved and mm-hmm. um and so I felt guilty for the times when I had disallowed that mm-hmm. you know um Brian Sutton Smith, who's a academic, um was one of the first people who wrote about play in a way that was. Accepted by the larger academic community, mm-hmm. um, he wrote that children are the world's largest captive population. You know, it's a
2: sobering notion, right? Yeah,
1: they can't they can't make a lot of choices. Um, and when you think about the reasons why people often feel depressed, it's often your what is it your locus of control. You um, don't have control over things in your life. You feel mm-hmm. out of control. You feel helpless. And so we wonder sometimes why children. There's increased levels of depression in children because they start off by not having much control over their lives, but then we've controlled even more and more of the time that they would have spent playing or having free time.
2: So how did you turn that realization about children and the guilt and the ambition and all the rest of it? How did you turn that into a a practice? um...
1: In the context of the New Children's Museum... Um, there's already so back from those warehouse days we still have that kind of spirit of experimentation mm-hmm. and um you know, my director Tomoko Kuta is unusually open to new ideas mm-hmm. and trying things out and allowing for, you know, potential failure mm-hmm. from the people that she works with. You know, when I first started at the museum I spent a lot of time just thinking about the context of what was already happening, what mm-hmm. was going on and what was going well, and what could be better. And, um, you know, I think finding, (laughs) you think about artwork that you've experienced, that you really feel like you have some kind of agency in, you know? And for me, it's often, you know, looking at paintings. I feel the most agency looking at a painting, because I can look at the painting however I want to look at the painting. Mm -hmm. Um, Installations often... In a sort of ironic way, I think I feel sometimes less agency in because I have to walk around them a certain way. Like they control my body in a different way. And they're
2: attempting to. Yeah, they're attempting to. Like that's to. part of their that's part of their their project is to yeah, like like m- mediate the body by controlling space or something like that. Yeah, yeah. But you're not compelled by that. Well, I mean,
1: I mean, some sometimes I am, um, but I think that trying to find places. So if you're gonna c- Commission artwork for an audience of children and families. There are a lot of constraints that you already have to think about. And, you know, we joke around about like, we have to think about any material that we use as potentially gnaw, gnawable. Mm-hmm. That's hard. We're just what, what, sorry. Gnawable. <laughs> like you can gnaw on it. Gnawable. By a toddler. G-G-N-A-W. G-N-A-W. This is expelling me. Gnawable. G-N-A-W-W-A-B-L-E. No, ding! <laughs> I went. because mm-hmm. um, because kids will put their mouths on anything, you know. Like, <laughs> I mean, I so um, one artist um, had these like foam footballs mm-hmm. that were a loose part. Can't wash those term- Yeah. Well, you, you you can you can clean them relatively well, but toddlers—it was a space for for babies—and even with their tiny tiny teeth were. Chewing chunks out of Look, it,
2: those teeth are very sharp they're very, they're very sharp. sharp, they're like little little
1: i don't Un-sizers, know I don't yeah know. they're they're like little weasels, yeah little razors little razors, so you know, even the things that you think of are it 's going to be squishy, and it's going to be fine, you're constantly surprised by material use right. and um, so we have all those kinds of constraints, but um I think one of the things that we often don 't think about in designing spaces for children, particularly for play. Is not just physical risk, but emotional risk, mm-hmm. you know. And I think that sometimes we're more likely to offer some kind of mediated physical risk than we are to offer uh, an emotional risk. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, thinking back to Boston Children's Museum in the sixties, seventies, um, going through the early eighties, took a lot of risks that were emotional risks. Um, there was an exhibit called "Passages," I think, "Death and Dying." And it was all about death. So let's take the thing that kids are already asking about. You know, they see a dead animal. They see people, somebody who's died in their life. And they have all kinds of questions about what's going to happen to the body. So instead of just trying to move away from that, can you actually approach that? You know, so there was a coffin, an actual coffin that kids could get into. Wow. Um, Right? So, so, but that's...
2: Pre-Instagram.
1: Instagram. It would be all over Instagram. It would be. Um, lots of hands crossed over the chest. Attendance would die. <laughs> <laughs>
2: um,
1: so I, I think about that kind of stuff and think about, so what do kids really want to do? What kind of questions do they really have? Um, and so to do, to do a kind of create a placeful space with artists, it's not just thinking about the kind of physical risks that a kid might be able to take, you know, or, um, is something going to be padded or not padded? But you know, like so, risk benefit assessment is something that we do a lot in mm-hmm. developing spaces.
2: Risk benefit yeah. assessment,
1: and it comes out of—I mean, it almost sounds like an insurance kind of thing, but it, um, it comes out of playwork in part because you look at something in a dynamic way. So if you watch a kid who's about to climb a tree, and In other spaces, they might say, don't climb that tree. The trees are off limits. So you think about how after-school programs are run. There are rules, like you can't climb the trees. Mm -hmm. But a playworker might watch that kid start to climb that tree, and they think about what they know about that child, what they've observed of that child that day, what they've observed of that child over time. If it's a child that they don't know, they're thinking about, well, what are the hazards here? Is there anything that this kid doesn't know about that I know about? Did this tree just get... uh, Manicured in some way that would make that would compromise some of the branches, right? So you let the thing happen versus stepping in. And um, but it's not just physical stuff. There's a really great example of risk benefit assessment for karaoke. What's that? So thinking about if you were going to introduce a karaoke, some sort of karaoke experience with kids, nobody would be thinking, okay, we really need to consider what, whether we should do this or not. It's probably oh, karaoke, it's fine. But there's incredible emotional risks of introducing karaoke because somebody might sing really badly. Somebody might think they're singing well, but actually be singing really poorly. Right. And they might get made fun of. And that might stick with them for the rest of their time with this group of people. Um, A kid might get super sweaty and get made fun of. Um, A kid might not want to participate and retreat into the corner. Um, But what are the benefits? You know, there's the opportunity to show off there's the opportunity to actually be good at singing there's the opportunity to be silly and goof off
2: and in the case of the karaoke i mean you're on stage right i mean so it's visible and the reaction is 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 observable Mm -hmm. and you and you know you can understand that and it may jive or not jive with how you're feeling and hence the hence the tension of the moment Mm -hmm. right Mm -hmm. and i think what's interesting about this sort of playwork, and we should we should what is a playwork Yeah. <laughs> what the hell is I that? I mean, I think we need to sort of yeah, let's yeah. let's scaffold yeah. this a little bit. So that so you work at this museum, yeah. You you invite an artist, um, or an artist is invited to do a project in this museum, you sit mm-hmm. with this artist and you, you know, talk about what they want to mm-hmm. do, where they wanna do it, what it is, can it be done, the materials, and then you embark on this process of sort of analyzing the um, you know, what it would be like for the, the visitors to the museum. Well,
1: you know, we kind of flipped it a little bit. That's That was how we always did it. Yeah. Um, and so we moved away from doing a group exhibition model. Mm-hmm. So we usually do um, define a theme. Mm-hmm. So one year it was trash. It was recycled food. material. Yeah. yeah, next year it was food. Um, And we would try to find artists who were making work somehow related to that theme. So it's not too far off from... Mm-hmm. How another museum might curate an exhibition, um, and so we kind of moved away from that because we found that by spending time with an artist and really getting to know an artist, you can come to the sense of trust mm-hmm. that then allows work to happen in a collaborative way. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, I think a lot of artists would be scared off if I, you know, if I say, "Here's here's what might happen," you know, as part of this process. Right. You know, I didn't mean that. I didn't, right. Yeah. Right. You know, and, and, and as a curator. I might say things to you about material choice that you've never had to think about, right? right? And at its worst, yeah. it becomes designed by a committee, and it's like public art. Mm-hmm. You've just reduced this really great idea to something that is lowest common denominator, or, you know, you stripped it of, of, of the crucial ideas. Right. Um, and so I came into the position at the New Children's Museum Really loving um, art as experience by John Dewey mm-hmm. and thinking about that how the creation the process of creating a work of art is indelibly linked to the experience of of that work of art and uh, so I really wanted to think about you know how do you craft this you know playful experience um, where the focus really is on. The playing child at the end of it mm-hmm. so you don't get so wrapped up in just playing together as adults mm-hmm. so it's bridging my experience as a playful adult in my mm-hmm. 20s mm-hmm. creating these experiences all over boston and my experience of really loving the potential of children mm-hmm. you know um and not the potential as a future yeah. you know wage earners but their potential in the now like who we are now
2: right. you know um, and so, I mean, as collaborative as that, the making of the artwork can be, um, so too, I mean, back to this notion of playworker. I mean, this is this sort of process-based approach that is applied to the artwork after it's mm-hmm. after it's made, after it's installed, right? So it's still like a, it's, it's still a process. It's mm-hmm. still a collaborative process. And, and so if the karaoke is a stage where you get feedback, I mean, this thinking about your example of this kid standing in front of, the solitary kid standing in front of this, tree mm-hmm. there's no feedback in that moment other mm-hmm. than the sort of emotional sort of calculations that they're doing and under the careful eye of the play worker, perhaps mm-hmm. you know this person can safely instruct the kid to scale the tree or even potentially and and it's a question even potentially mm-hmm. sort of tip them to doing something they wouldn't normally do i mean thinking mm-hmm. about you know on mm-hmm. the sort of granular level granular level of emotions and and how um Play, the notion of play seems to be infused with emotions, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, how you can live a whole a whole uh, world of emotions in the context of one game, a board game, mm-hmm, even. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, do you think about you know as much as you're managing the artist's emotions, and and you know sort of, do you think about managing the children's emotions? That sounds creepier huh. than I mean it to be, but I mean that play worker, it's... you're saying I get to kn- they the, they get to know the kid, they watch them that day, and and then what? Like, what's the what's a what's a badass? Playworker move.
1: <laughs> um, well, okay, so I can give you an example. Um, we have a piece by Alan Capro mm-hmm. reinvented by Brian Dick. Twice. Yes, twice, yeah. called No Rules Except. And Brian Dick was a student of Alan Capro at UCSD, and in 2008, he was invited back to reinvent one of Alan Capro's works. And he was asked to reinvent Yard from 1963 or No Rules Except from 2001. And technically, he reinvented No Rules Except, which oh. is Alan Capro's room full of pillows that was at LACMA Lab um, that he created in collaboration with his then, I think, 11-year-old son, Brahm. Or um, he could do Yard, which was the piece with the, the tires in um, originally shown at Martha Jackson Gallery. So Brian took a very um, maximalist <laughs> approach to it and he created a room that was lined with mattresses all on the walls and on the floor and then he made these tire-shaped pillows, of you know, sort of life-size car tire pillows that you could stack and move around and do whatever you want with. So in that space, we'll have a playworker. A playworker is somebody who's a member of the exhibition's team. And they're doing this constant, just reviewing the space. And we know what the artist has intended, you know? So um, we kind of have these conversations about, at what point would this not become the artwork as you see it? So if a child removed all the tires and took all the tires to another space, would this no longer be no rules except? So we have these kind of interesting concepts. Yeah, Brian. with Brian, yeah. yeah, with Brian Dick. and. These interesting conceptual questions. Um, would it be, if this happened, would this be okay? If a child took all the mattresses off the wall and stacked them up in the corner, would that be okay? And that starts to guide how we put together
2: the space. Do you have a, a guiding philosophy or mantra, like it, some sort of minimal statement of intervention or something?
1: You know... Um,
2: or there's some things that he's like, no, really, that can't happen, but, but I'm willing to sort of say... Yeah, that that there's leeway in that regard.
1: Yeah, I think I think we work through all those things. It's not, you know, specific. There's it's called no rules except which the whole point, at least as I see it, you know, is that we make up our own rules depending on the situation and everything around us is constantly shifting. Mm -hmm. And we like to think that everything is linear. But the way a playworker is going to react to one child is very different than how that same playworker will react to another child. And it's all... They spend a lot of time observing. Um, And we think about observing without... um, (laughs) It just sounds creepy in -hmm. the context of children, but I think it's Carl Rogers, that observe with no memory and no desire. So you watch what's happening, not with a memory of how you played as a kid or what your memory of what happened yesterday, you know, and then also no desire of trying to push somebody in a very specific direction, you know? Uh, so you're just watching and you're just saying, you know, there's a child stacking tires.
2: Is it important? You, is it important? Do you think to the children's experience that somebody's watching them or is that, or is that just sort of a, a necessary byproduct of this sort of open format?
1: Yeah, their children are very aware of us in the space and they change their behavior so sometimes if we're too present mm-hmm. we'll step aside and we'll move out of the way um we do a lot of actually working with the adults you know on the outskirts so sometimes an adult you'll see it, an adult showing some kind of anxiety about what's happening and so a play worker might have noticed this and then step over and just have a conversation with that adult distract the adult Sometimes, yeah, um, and then sometimes just to answer the question, you know. Mm-hmm. Sometimes, so people freak out. They see a room full of mattresses and they start thinking about like bed bugs and things like that. And so we can have a conversation about how we protect the mattresses and what our cleaning is like. Mm-hmm. And by doing that, now you've given space for the child to play. So, uh, so bought some time. Bought some time. Well, yeah, and, that, and that's that's really playworkers define themselves in many different ways but uh one way of defining ourselves is that we create a space that's conducive to play.
2: Mm-hmm. I mean it's crucial then that these playworkers are know what they're doing.
1: Yeah. So we yeah.
2: I mean do you did you I mean you now have a masters in playwork. So I mean are you would are you did you create a program or a process of training for yeah. these people? Yeah. How, how, what does that look like?
1: So this is kind of a funny story. So we started off um you know, I'm, I'm in a curatorial role at the museum and typically the curator at a contemporary art museum doesn't supervise the floor staff, you know. And
2: this is we should say these aren't docents, these aren't ex, these aren't guards, these no. aren't um installers. Yeah. No. They are they are work there's they a category that doesn't exist at other museums. Yeah, no, it's right? very
1: different. Like and when I came in, um the role that's sort of now become the museum playworker role was called museum guide. Mm-hmm. And Not not as cool sounding. Yeah, not as cool sounding. And, you know, the museum guide might stand in a gallery and offer information about the artwork. So if someone wanted to learn more about the artwork, sometimes they might do a gallery game. So there'd be some interpretation of an artwork. So maybe there'd be some kind of materials that you bring out in addition to the artwork. Um, Sometimes if there was an artwork that, for instance, uh, inflatable sculpture that kids could go inside they would monitor a line so people would wait in line yeah. and then they'd say so it's, it's actually not different than a contemporary art museum that has some kind of interactive, interactive. Right. there's going to be a guard there who's watching to make sure you know this is your time to go in this is your time to see the Kusama piece you know right um, take off your shoes <laughs> exactly Put Exactly. Right. right don't lean against the wall they yeah all these rules do this and you kind of feel like you're just contorting your body just what am I supposed to do how am I, I supposed to when be I was told me
2: I couldn't lean on the wall to take off my shoes
1: you couldn't lean on the wall to take off your shoes
2: no oh I'm just god. like oh man just paint it or something I don't know I'm, I'm clean I'm, I'm cl- clean
1: oh my I'm god clean. and this is
2: then I resent Ugh. then I resent visited the rest of the exhibit
1: <laughs> <laughs> resent visited I like that is that, is that a term no You just coined it. Right here. I'm going to resent
2: visit all the time now. Um, I've I've done a lot of hate-making recently.
1: Hate-making and (laughs) resent-visiting.
2: This is the Matt Rich way. Well, it's just you get too busy and then something doesn't make sense or it breaks. I just had this bad experience with this object. And it turned out all right in the end. But there was a lot of, like, it wasn't from a place of peace or understanding that I made this object. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So I... This just got into a bunch of interesting things, but... um, but one of them is, so if you, um, I, it's very woo-woo, but I feel like I want to keep as much of that hate-making out of the spaces in the New yeah. Children's Museum as possible, <laughs> you know? Because I feel like these these objects, they're like, I i was born in California, moved to Boston. I was not woo-woo. I've become more woo-woo since moving back to California. But uh, they they take in all that energy you know so we were having a conversation about a new artwork that's going to be coming in in june and it has a flooring underneath it that's squishy so just to absorb potential falls and i was talking about how i want to make sure it's easy to clean because at night the night crew is going to come in and clean it and i don't want them to be frustrated trying to get dirt out of these little crevices because that's going to be in the space it will
2: leave a residue yes yes
1: and so an emotional residue. An emotional residue and and you can you can feel it. So when you go into a space that's so controlled and so you have to behave this way and not this way, you've just taken out what possibility there is for for I think genuine play and you've replaced it with this space for I'm going to sneak in some play. So I'm going to try to maybe be like you probably I'm going to mm-hmm. lean against the something else other than the mm-hmm. that wall so when i see a installation or exhibit or anything in museums where people are people who work at that museum are complaining about it and they say oh people keep wrecking this thing or they keep doing there's something wrong in that design Mm -hmm. you know it's it's people are trying to find some way to play with it and the way that's been offered to them is not satisfactory
2: well, I was so struck when you said, you know, these play workers are told not to remember, not to look from a place of remembering or desire. Is that yeah,
1: it I mean, they can think back on their previous experiences, but it's not, um, so in, in play styles, right? So everybody plays in a different way. And we're so conditioned to think about play as I play a game or I play with dolls or I play you know, play with something, or play, mm-hmm. right? So if you think about play instead in terms of, like cheek Mensi hi, oh God, I can never say his name. Cheek me hi. Cheek Mensi hi. Uh, flow. Talking about flow, and this idea of where you feel really yourself. So you feel it's a thing that you would do even if you didn't get paid for it. It's a thing that you lose track of time mm-hmm. while you're doing. You're just so immersed in it, and you feel like your challenges and your abilities are in this really nice. Kind of meeting each other mm-hmm. and going back and forth you're you're in that place of um not quite equilibrium, yeah, you know, but rebalancing mm-hmm. you know, and that's where most of life happens the good parts, I guess, and that's play, so that's how I would define mm-hmm. play so like a, a
2: a careful asymmetry or something like
1: yeah, that, yeah, yeah, there's another um writer, Arthur Batram, who talks about it as being in the barrel of the wave, mm-hmm. so you're not in the um what you know the water is never completely in stasis right but it's dynamic you're not also not crashing over Mm -hmm. the wave into chaos where you can't find any footing you know um but you're in this place where you know how to it's a little bit scary there's there's that tension but it's kind of an exciting tension Mm -hmm. it's um hard fun is another way that Seymour
2: Papert talks about it hard fun i'm familiar with the term meaningful play and the mm. idea that you can um that you have a sense of authorship right that your decisions mm-hmm. will matter mm-hmm, mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. um and then they're, arbit- they're, they're not they're not in a space they're not they they won't have an arbitrary result but this desire this sense of desire i mean i went back to it because it seems like on the on the, the standpoint of the designer right i mean you're saying that mm-hmm. the, the people creating these situations for kids they that they sort of over prescribe or or they they over predict or something like that but it's really really hard to think about sort of giving over authorship right or 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 even yeah creating this design the system that that obviously must have authorship Mm -hmm. right and
1: well that's a good question you know I mean
2: well you have to do well I don't know I mean what well I'll ask you like what's what's the minimum required for authorship for authorship guess that's the end of my question like i do know i was gonna say <laughs> yeah. in the museum but somewhere else in your life too or or, or theoretically like yeah. what's the you know somebody you and another team of people are are doing this wonderful thing and trying to create this really use the word genuine this mm-hmm. genuine sense of experience or play like how do you do it
1: mm-hmm, <laughs> mm-hmm. well we talk a lot about alan capro in general at the museum and um he was in his writing about happenings early on he talked about the fact that the artist only controls it to the degree that it sh- keeps shaking right.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: And I, you know, we're at this weird intersection of the art world and the children's museum world. And in both places, they have their own external pressures. Mm-hmm. And I'm very aware that if an artist completes a show at the New Children's Museum, that's a museum show on his or her CV. And it doesn't matter if it's the New Children's Museum. Maybe it would probably be more exciting if it was the new museum, right. the New Children's Museum in terms of their career. But um, it's still adding to the potential value of of their work in the art world. And um, so that's its own pressure. On the other side, you have the children's museum pressure and people sometimes assume, my kid's going to learn something here, you know? And if my child hasn't learned something in the way that I define learning something, now the experience doesn't have as much value because I, as a caregiver, have so much pressure on me to make sure that I'm editing and creating this child that's going to be successful. It's a complicated
2: triangulation, too. You have to make something that's exciting for the kid, but also from a third party observing it makes them think that it's educational or something like that.
1: And I, I want to approach conversations about the artwork with a high level of integrity that I, mm-hmm. I would never want to say something about the artwork or the experiences, mm-hmm. you know, the installations that I wouldn't say in front of a kid. Or I wouldn't, you know, I might say it in a different way, but that I'd be embarrassed if I could really understood what I was saying. Mm-hmm. So I despise the cheese on the broccoli metaphor that <laughs> you know people in children's museums who say things like they think they're playing and having fun but they're really learning right cuz that's fucked up you know right. that's that's going into this sort of yankee idea of that play and work are opposites right versus if play is where you really feel you're, you, you are yourself if you feel you know self actualized if you feel then does work? Like, that's that's not fair to work because sometimes right. work, you know, I, I have a job where I feel that sense of flow on a daily basis. I also do things that I don't want to do and they give me headaches and I, you know, right. there's, so sometimes I'm playing and sometimes I'm working, but it's just like that balancing, that equilibrium, that being in the barrel of the wave, I feel like I have some, control an agency in that when I'm playing and when I'm working.
2: Yeah. I I read or heard you say maybe in one of your interviews that that um it's not art until you're in it. That's one of your mantras yeah. right, at the museum. Yeah. And that seems I've taught a couple of classes that have had experience design as their sort of central principle. Mm-hmm. And I think it's it's something that's really um, easy um, to communicate, hard to understand but easy to communicate. Mm-hmm. That, you know, you are you are a human designing this thing, this website, this room, this book, this whatever the interactive medium, you know, whatever the medium of the interactive experience is, you're designing this thing for another human.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: And um, they're as complicated and as engaged and interesting. And, and when stimulated, they can bring a huge amount to the table and do a lot of your work for you, right? So mm-hmm. I think that gets to this idea of um, not only sort of how you can have a sort of genuine invested experience, but, a, you know. Share, sharing or even giving over authorship.
1: Yes. So that's another person we talk a lot about in the exhibitions team. So, the, you know, the play workers and exhibitions coordinator and design and fabrication coordinator. We talk a lot about um, Paulo Freire and the pedagogy of the oppressed and this idea that it's liberating when you start to think of yourself not as teacher and student mm-hmm. but as teacher-student, student-teachers. You know, we're all learning from each other, mediated by our environment. And that's the part I think that when I discovered playwork, it just made so much sense to me. And I was like, you know, people who've started to meditate? And then they everybody needs to meditate and they say, Oh my God, you need to try meditating. It's amazing. And I think it's a similar experience because they've opened themselves up to seeing something in a very different way. And it's this very human impulse to want to bring other people along with you and so for me that's that's been my experience with with play um and luckily i happen to have a platform <laughs> pretty amazing <venue>. yeah absolutely <laughs> you know and the people who have come onto the team and we, this, we've transitioned from museum guides to museum play workers and the people on your watch on my watch mm-hmm. and so it just it was a i don't know a a bureaucratic serendipity because the person who had been supervising the museum guides needed to move on to some other role Mm -hmm. and so suddenly they needed someone to oversee this floor team and so I said okay I'll do it
2: in addition to what you're doing other all the other responsibilities yeah
1: so in addition to developing fabricating installing managing exhibitions so what I was able to do is Slowly watch just as I did when I first started at the museum, just kind of observe what's happening with this team and looking to see if there was the opportunity to start introducing playwork practice. Right. Um, and so we did it little by little, and it was really difficult because a lot of the people who were in that role came from an art history background, a critical theory background, really wanted to be curators, wanted to work in a museum, and suddenly. I was saying you can't tell people what to think. Don't interpret. Don't interpret. And that's just it's difficult for anybody, but mm-hmm. suddenly then it's almost like I took away your job. So if you you your whole job has been to look for someone who might want to hear what you have to say about art. I'm an expert. <laughs> I'm I've an learned expert, things. Right? right. And you're a person of in authority who says, Take off your shoes or mm-hmm. don't lean there, you know. So I've taken away that authority in a way and that expert status and um most everybody quit really yeah I'm um, best boss ever Wait. give me a mug <laughs> but slowly but surely people were just and they were upset about it and they were upset that people might come to the museum and not know if they were in an art museum and so I would question well what does it matter are they still in an art museum if they don't know they're in an art museum
2: right expectations,
1: expectations you know and so, so how much of that is our own ego to say that, well, I don't work at a children's museum. I work in an art museum. And how much is that about devaluing people who work with children? So we got into all these kinds of things that I think are fascinating. Absolutely. Um, and one of uh, the museum guides, there's one person who stayed on the team as it started to transition into this. To people who were hiring as museum playworkers eventually. Uh, and she's now... In curatorial studies at Bard and she says that the experience that she had has informed her curatorial practice I believe it right in- incredibly and it that's that's what's so difficult because curators typically have art history terminal degrees right um I have a master's in play and playwork, um but I do a lot of reading. I have lots of conversations with colleagues. We're trying to take this apart and think about what we're doing, but we're doing what Helen Caprow called the unartist. You know, this idea that the unartist is someone who continues to make work under the banner as he or she did under the banner of art, mm-hmm. but among those who don't care about that. <laughs> so I mean, so
2: I mean that's the fact that you know one of your playworkers is now at bard and it's an amazing program mm-hmm. and they're going to go off and do something else but with this you know core notion embedded inside or this mm-hmm. experience embedded inside and you you are certainly sort of you know you're gone to england and studied under the sky and you know stuart lester and then and then come back and you know sort of shape this program uh, i yeah. mean a sort of a dorky question but sort of the 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 program by which you the training process, thinking about ways that these ideas can be explored. Yeah, yeah, right? yeah. I mean, it's the people who go on. But I mean, if you you know, if you suddenly decided that you wanted to move to Alaska and just be by yourself tomorrow, you know, mm-hmm. would this would the museum continue to function? Have you written this down? I mean, have you somehow formalized or institutionalized that this amazingly subtle, difficult, I know. untraining, retraining, unlearning, lo- looking process? Right.
1: Yeah. I um I've given a lot of thought to that because
2: it's more subtractive than it is additive in some ways. Yes,
1: way. absolutely. I mean, you have to go through and be humbled. That you know, a playworker I know said she was a researcher when she first discovered playwork, and she'd gone to an adventure playground in which London. we should define real we fast. We should, yeah. yeah. So these these playgrounds that are um, sometimes have some kind of built equipment, but usually it's made out of wood, um, and children can paint on that equipment if they want to. They can um bring in scrap and they can build something that they want to build. Um people get really focused on the hammers and nails aspect. Oh my god, you give a kid a hammer. Right. It's not about that. It's about the liberation of actually being able to impact your space in a really big way. Shape it permanently. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, you know. Um and and that's also I think what as artists, we have that sense. We can shape our our environment. Yeah. And so it's allowing kids that kind of space, you know. Um, So this playworker goes on to this playground that's run by children, really. I mean, there's playworkers there who are supporting, but the children are in charge and they're asking her who she is and what she's doing. And she puts down her tape recorder and they steal her tape recorder and they mess with it. And there's a bunch of, you know, I'm sure lots of references to poop and farting and things on the tape when she gets it back. And she was just deflated. But that it took that humbling to be able to understand this is not my space. This right. is one space out of millions of spaces that is actually run by children versus run by adults. You know, our built environment is made not for the needs of children, but for the needs of getting to work quickly.
2: Right. <laughs> um, Parking lots aren't even made for people.
1: No, right? You know, all these other things. Like that's. <laughs> I think a lot about cat food cans.
2: what for they're made for boxes they're made for
1: boxes they're made for stacking and it's really hard to get all the cat food out of the cat food can you know their main that their main design is to help transport them you know and help store them and because it's whatever old meat we're feeding to cats right but that's neither here nor there um so thinking about how does this get transmitted how does this get shared right um and the, so playwork is something that you really can't go and do a course in. You know, I got all the theoretical stuff from my master's degree, but I, I've learned more from the people I work with than I, than I have, you know, in terms of daily practice Absolutely. and being constantly humbled and, you know, giving a space where we're collaboratively thinking about what, what could this be, you
2: know, well, it's the situation where it seems like the, the, the best case or the most, it's like the most important thing in this situation is to get feedback, right? I mean, yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, you, they do all sorts of product testing and, you know, audience testing and yeah. things like that. But like, you know, you can work with these, I mean, I'm not, you mentioned failures. I'm sure there are failures oh, where yeah. you had the best intentions oh, yeah. and no kid wants to play with this thing or yeah, the play yeah. they do with yeah. it is one dimensional or something yeah. like that. So, I mean, do you think, because you get caught up in these notions of interactivity and in community or something Mm -hmm. like that. Quality. Like, I mean, how do you ensure quality? (laughs) So is that my question?
1: uh, Well, okay. So if you went to the museum, the new children's museum in 2009 or 2010, I think you would have seen some really beautiful things and some really well taken care of things. If you go to the museum like tomorrow, Mm -hmm. um, you just see some things that look a little ragged. Mm-hmm. Um, then it's taken some while for that comfort to happen because to be okay. with to the be okay, Yeah. Because, um, I talk about this idea of like wabi-sabi sort in Japanese aesthetics. So the, you know, the ceramic bowl that has an imperfection and it's not really an intentional perfection, but it is kind of an intentional perfection imperfection and, um, That's the thing that says, hey, maybe I could play with this. Like, maybe there's it's not too perfect. So if a kid says something that's perfect, that looks like that involves, that's the world of adults, right? So
2: That's the language.
1: Yeah, that's the visual language of adults. It's things that are ordered, you know? Now, there's some kids that really like things that are ordered, and we think about that. Like, where's the kid that gets stressed out by seeing mess? And so where does that kid go in the museum to play the way that that kid wants to play? Um, and that's probably a deficit, you know, the place for the kid who really doesn't want to get messy. It's not, we don't offer that kind of play for a lot of kids.
2: Well, there's lots of kind of order. I mean, there's order not, maybe not in the finish of an object, but the arrangement of objects mm-hmm. or something.
1: Like yeah, for sure. <clears throat> and so I, you know, we, I talk about the difference between, um, pretty and beautiful. And I think so often we settle for pretty with children because we want to, uh, make their nursery just perfect, mm-hmm. We, you know? But beautiful is sometimes when you see a kid who's just completely like muddy or and, and there's just this great beauty because that kid is happy. Mm-hmm. Um, we had a space that we called cardboard chaos for a while, and it was just a room that had recently been a storage room that we filled with cardboard boxes and um and it was a real shit show if you walk by. You know, you look at this and some people would say um, I think this is their recycling room. Yeah, close like, the door. Just like we'd have door. a giant room for recycling. It was like the dump or something. But but kids would come back again and again. And I remember this one kid when we were building some forts out of this kind of stuff. He left and he asked that we didn't change it. And we said, we won't. No, no, we won't change it. We built this fort. And he came back the next day. I could hear him in line. He could see a little bit from where he was in line. And he's talking to his mom. Okay, okay, I can see the flag. That's a good sign. Because he had no trust in us that we would actually, we'd probably just say to him, oh, yeah, we'll keep it here forever, not thinking that he's going to come back tomorrow and call us out on it. So he comes back and he sees it. And so what is that? what impact does that have for that kid that they've been able to trust a museum, <laughs> being right. able to trust people, you know? Um, what kind of impact, when, so I think about this experience. My friend Dolores went to the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum with her mom. And her mom speaks, I think, only Spanish. And her mom was exclaiming about something, like I can't remember, it's like some chandelier. She was saying, "Mira, mira," you know, really. And the guard shushed her. And I'm thinking, Isabella Stewart Gardner probably wouldn't have shushed her. Probably would have been excited that she liked the chandelier, you know. So why do we have these rules, right? And play work is really about reflecting on why do why are we thinking about these rules? Why is it important that somebody takes off their shoes? And you ask a kid, and they'll be like, yeah, well, because if we're climbing around, if I hit somebody else in the head with my socked foot, it's probably not going to hurt as much as it would with a chewed foot. Common sense. Common sense. You know, other kids have gone into no rules except, and they're like, no rules? What, it means I can kill somebody in there? And so we used to say, do you want to kill someone in there? They're like, oh, no. Cool. Okay, I think you've made the rules yourself. Right, and that's, i mean—that that,
2: that speaks to the the fact that this system is embedded in other systems. Yeah. Right? that we that, you know we have we have our sense of morals, right, which come from all sorts of different places: right. laws and families, right. and you know, love, and all the places that we you know. So it's not right. I mean, the the, the playworkers are there to, to set some limits, and you've agreed with the artists on some limits, but um, it's the world is enacting itself. Yeah, its I mean, complexity inside.
1: It's this playwork comes out of a, a social anarchist root. It also comes out of um, artists who are, you know, part of the Situationist movement. I mean, so there's there's definitely art roots to what playwork is, but it's also distinctly anti-capitalist because um, we don't think of the child as a future producer which if you think of a child as a future adult you're you're thinking about that so how is this child going to contribute to the economy so every time you ask a child what do you want to be when you grow up it's a thinly veiled way of saying how do, how would you like to join our capitalist society you know versus how do you like to spend your time now or what did you do today or all those kinds of things and and so i think being a children's museum that is also a contemporary art museum that attracts these really amazing staff members who are often young, straight out of school. Um, We have this opportunity to rethink what museums can be. And if you think about play as something that makes you feel really who you are, if you can't play in a museum, then you're cutting yourself off from a lot of what humanity...
2: A whole range of experiences. Yeah,
1: and I think about that in terms of, so I, I do have this other side project called Occupy Museums mm-hmm. and um, thinking about what is it that keeps us from being playful or playing in museums. And I've done a couple experiments with different museums, people who work at different That's museums. That's an
2: online platform. That...
1: Yeah, I mean, it's, it's not totally open yet, but we're thinking about, you know, um, prompts, just mm-hmm. these little prompts that you can think about. And, you know, I found from one museum... They have a rule about how you can't sit anywhere on the floor. You're not allowed to sit on the floor for a variety of reasons. But so already, you're, you, there's a lot of possibility that's that's not off, offered to you, mm-hmm. you know. Um, and a lot of the reasons are we're afraid, we're afraid of getting in trouble, we're afraid of liability, we're afraid that someone is going to get hurt on our watch, and that's a, a being afraid that somebody might get hurt is a good you know, emotion, right? You know, it's caring for other people and you want to care for people who have come into your museum. But are they always going to hurt themselves if they do this one thing, right? Um, I also think about museums as collecting institutions. And so how is our real goal to preserve the artwork exactly as it is? And if that's our real goal... Then we shouldn't show the artwork. <laughs> the artwork should all stay in vaults and, and and not see the light and but that's not really what we're about as museums we're about um, I was reading something recently about the word empathy, and I haven't researched this to see if it's really true. But the word empathy was actually coined in relationship to artwork hmm. to try to talk about the the feeling of trying to feel an artwork to the, the feeling of trying to understand an artwork and have that sense that emotional connection so that's what i think museums art museums are really about um and if we can be a place that connection between people can happen um even better and it's if you really open yourself up to it and you start thinking about what you'd have to change in order to be a more inclusive museum you might decide that well we shouldn't have museums anymore you know there's mm-hmm. that's still a possibility mm-hmm. um so that's what you know when people don't know they're in an art museum i don't really mind because they're still in an art museum even if they don't know it
2: right and that makes me think too i mean the idea of the empathy and the sort of um, connection to the artwork and feeding off of it and it goes back to the the idea that objects in in the museum are you know show wear and tear mm-hmm. from usage, mm-hmm. and that usage communicates as well. I mean, you said maybe yes. maybe the fact that it's not new, but more specifically, it's you know, oh, maybe the child is not even aware from it, but I know to roll this thing right, or I know that I can roll this thing left because they're worn in such a way mm-hmm. that you might you know my eyes tell my hand yeah. to put it there or that it's that it, that it shows the marks of the floor i mean yeah. so that you know the details of this are incredibly interesting just sort of decode mm-hmm. and I go back to thinking about the, the playworker worker looking at the tr- the kid in front of the tree, mm-hmm. trying to make this sort of, you mm-hmm. know, this minute sort of emotional decision about whether mm-hmm. I can do this or whether I can't right. do this.
1: And um, you're witnessing it. So you're witnessing, witnessing it, it, it and, but you don't have a sense that you necessarily have to intervene. And I, I can tell you watching kids do risky things, I'm freaking the fuck out inside, you know, I'm just kind of like, okay. And I have to take a deep breath and just watch what's happening and also trust that this kid has some idea of what he or she is doing, that the other grown-ups around me (laughs) have some idea of what's going on. Um, And then nine times out of ten, the kid does something amazing.
2: And I want to really thank you for talking uh, to me this evening and uh, sharing some of your thoughts and experiences. So thank you, Megan Dickerson. Thank you, Matthew Rich.
0: We've made it to the end. A quick reminder that Deep Color is independently produced and a free resource for listeners. Help support and sustain this project by making a donation online at deepcolorpodcast.com. You can also learn more about each contributing artist, find links to their online portfolios, and access the archive of past recordings. Be sure to share this project within your community and subscribe and rate in Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, or Stitcher. Thanks for listening, and check back soon for a new episode.